Today's passage is from Luke 10, 25 to 37, the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbors as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, thank you, Evelyn. Good morning, church. I'm glad we can come together to worship the Lord uh, together. This Sunday, we continue on with our missions month in October here. Uh, just, a just a little recap how the month started. We had two weeks, a little mini two-week series on what does it look like to contextualize the gospel uh, in, the fa uh, in, in Vancouver here as we live out our lives. And then we had a uh, guest speaker from Edupavi, Jackie Wong, share about her ministry down in Guatemala. And last weekend, we had a conversation with Jess Leung and I where we talked about missions and we picked her brain uh, a little bit with her mission experience. Now, for those that, that are wondering uh, about the podcast that we have had um, and we we're hoping to restart, uh, if you want to hear more about Jess uh, and her story, you can listen to episode 5 and 10. Scroll way back, back to 2020, uh, <laughs> and you'll hear uh, the stories uh, there. Okay, so it's my joint privilege to uh, invite Pastor, a uh, Reverend uh, Samuel Lee up. Uh, he's currently at the English Ministry Pastor at our sister church, Lord's Grace. Uh, they're around, I always forget the exact street name, but Arbutus and Broadway, they're around uh, that, that area. Uh, and they're by Platform 7, the coffee shop. That's what that's, uh, my references are to coffee shops and, rest, uh, and restaurants around. So uh, he's been there for almost seven years now, come March. And it's really been a joy uh, walking uh, for him to walk alongside of me as I picked his brain, as I learned from him in ministry. Originally, he's from Toronto. Uh, he moved here for seminary uh, back in the day, uh, a little while ago now. So uh, please give a very warm uh, LLC welcome to Reverend Samuel Lee. Thank you, Pastor Doug. Uh, thank you, LLC, for welcoming me back. Um, I think, I think it's been about four years since I was here, and Doug never invited me back, so I thought you guys, uh, I thought the last time I was here, I upset some people or burned some bridges because I went too long, and so I wasn't getting an invite back, so I'll try to be shorter this time, and uh, thank you. Um, I really appreciate your pastor. Um, he puts up with, there, there's three of us that kind of try to get together periodically, and me and the other guy are a little bit weird, and our sense of humor is a little bit 
darker than his, but he still puts up with us, so I appreciate him and his uh, kindness and generosity. Um, let's, let's pray together. Lord, we know that you are here, and we ask that you would speak, that you would give me the words to speak, and that you would speak into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives, the truth of that word, of your word, and that you would shape us and change us for your glory, Lord. So, Lord, may everything that comes out of my mouth be pleasing and glorifying to you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's taken me a while but I like to think that I finally kind of, kind of learned how to talk to my kids about their school day. When my daughter first started school, I would pick her up and I'd ask her, did you have a good day? Yeah. Did you enjoy school? Yeah. And I found pretty quickly that if I ask questions like that, the conversation ends really quickly. So I started thinking. I'll ask open-ended questions. How was your day today? And I thought, this, is, this will keep the conversation going. So, how was your day? And she'd answer a little bit for a, few, for, for a little while. But then it wasn't very long before she figured out, when I asked, how was your day, if she answers, good, fine, okay, that will end, end the conversation with dad pretty quickly. It took some time, but I realized that if I want my daughter and now my son to answer well, I have to ask good questions. If I want them to share about their day, I have to ask them the right questions. Otherwise, it's going to be a very short conversation. If I ask yes-no questions, I get yes-no answers. If I ask the wrong open-ended questions, I still get short answers. But if I ask the right open-ended questions, I get much better answers where they start telling me a little bit more of what, they're, what, they ha what they went through that day. But over time, I also realized asking, that asking the right open-ended question with some people means sitting there and having to listen to them for a very long time. And I realized sometimes I don't want to ask the right questions with some people. I'd rather ask the yes-no questions and get the conversation done and over with so I can move on. Asking the right questions can be costly. Asking the right questions can put us in a hard spot. But I really believe that asking the right questions is important to us. I know that the parable of the Good Samaritan is one that you guys have probably all heard. Is that me? Am I causing the feedback? Or, oh. I know that the parable of the Good Samaritan is one that probably all of us have heard time and time again. We've heard it over and over. But I hope, I hope that in spite of that, you can hear the parable, the, the story, the passage today with new ears. Because I want us to look at something more than just the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want us to look at the questions that are asked in this passage. And the first question that's asked is asked by an expert in the law. You want to switch? Should I switch? Good, I felt like Britney Spears with this thing on my head. <laughs> I know I don't look like her, but I felt like her. <laughs> I want us to look at the questions that are asked in this passage of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the first question that's asked by an expert in the law comes in Luke 10, 25, and it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. 
Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? From Luke's commentary, from what Luke says, we know that the expert's motives were kind of shady. We're already told that this expert stood up to test Jesus. So as he comes with this question, this, his first question, we know that there's an ulterior motive behind it. He's trying to test Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? All he's worried about is himself. How can I get eternal life? How can I get into heaven? What must I do? He doesn't care about anyone else. He doesn't really care about Jesus' answer. He just wants to know, what do, I, what do I have to do? What's the bare minimum I need to do to get into heaven? He's made that assumption that eternal life is something that he can earn. And he doesn't care if anyone else gets eternal life as well. All he cares about is himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? For if you notice, instead of answering his question directly, Jesus replies with two questions of his own. Verse 26 tells us, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? What is written in the law? How do you read it? As any good expert in the law or even a bad expert in the law, in fact, pretty much every Jewish person at that time should have been able to answer Jesus' question without having to think much. Verse 27 tells us, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think even most of us, if asked that question, would be able to answer with those verses. And on the surface, Jesus' Jesus's reply, his questions to the expert seem really nice. But if you read between the lines, it actually reads a little bit differently. How do you, inter how do you read it? Jesus is basically replying, if you're really an expert in the law, you should know what you need to do. If, you, if you're an expert in the law, you should already know this. Why are you asking me? But obviously, you know it, you're just not doing it. So that's why he asks them. So how do you interpret what it says? How do you interpret love the Lord your God and love your neighbor? I don't know about you, but that stings. If I'm the one getting that answer, it stings. It reminds me of a time in seminary. I came out from Regent College. I grew up uh, not in Toronto. I, I, I grew up in a little town called London. Um, but I came out to Regent College, and I had, I'm so old that I had classes with, like, the old famous profs, like, all the profs that are dying lately. Like, Gordon Fee was one of my profs, and he passed away this week. Um, and I had a class with J.I. Packer, one of the greatest theological minds of this last century. And I remember... There was a lady, a middle-aged lady, really smart lady, because she was a medical doctor, who had come to Regent to study for personal growth. And in the middle, middle of class, she put up her hand and asked a question. After she finished the question, I honestly, I don't remember what the question was or what the question was about or anything, but I cannot forget Packer's response. Packer basically said, if you were paying attention for the last 15 minutes or last 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you would know the answer to that question, next. He literally said next. And I remember a bunch of us in the, in the lecture hall just going, ouch. We all could just kind of shrunk down because we, heard, we felt her pain. We felt her pain. We went quiet. This is that kind of a response. Anybody who tells you there's no such thing as a stupid question, don't believe them. <laughs> Packer confirmed to me very wholeheartedly there are things as stupid questions. 
And this is one of them. The, this expert in the law, his question is a stupid question. And Jesus' answer was to put him in his place. How do you read it? Obviously, you know it, so how do you read it? Why aren't you doing it? We read this passage, and I don't think we react like that. I don't think we react to the harshness of Jesus' answer. We think Jesus loves everybody. Jesus loves me. Jesus is really nice. And I don't think we understand how harsh his answer actually is to this teacher of the law. But I imagine most of the people who were there, they knew exactly what Jesus was doing. And when Jesus answered this guy like that, I would imagine a lot of their reactions were like me and my friend's reactions when Packer said that to the lady. Oh, ouch. Ah, don't ask him anything. Don't ask him a question. The expert in the law should know the answer. So the problem for Jesus is not whether he knows what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. It's why aren't you doing it? How do you read it? Why aren't you doing it? You know what you need to do. So why aren't you doing it? And if you look, the expert in the law never actually answers Jesus' question. He never answers the question of how do you read it? He simply answered the what. And then Jesus told them, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. He knows the answer. Now he has to live the answer. But then I think the next part is the part that gets me. When we, we get the next question that the teacher in the law asked, and I think it's not just the teacher in the law. I think a lot of us ask the same question. The expert in the law then asked, and who is my neighbor? How many of us here have asked that question? And who is my neighbor? On the surface, again, it doesn't look like a bad question. I think that's why we ask it so often. Who's my neighbor? We want to know, who is my neighbor? Is my neighbor just the person next door? Maybe it's the person who lives within a block or two block radius. Maybe it's everyone in the three block radius or Maybe it's everybody in the three-block radius plus Asians in a five-block radius. But if you read what Luke said about the question, again, Luke is telling us something. He's, comment, he's commenting on that question. Verse 29 says, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The expert in the law is trying to make up for Jesus knocking him down with his previous question. So he's trying to build himself back up. And who is my neighbor? Jesus already showed him up by proving to him he's not living and doing what, he's what he already knows he should be doing. And so now this guy's trying to save face. Almost makes me think he's Asian. He's trying to save face with Jesus and with the crowd there saying, who is my neighbor? And in response to this, it's in response to this question that Jesus tells the story of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? Luke has already given us a hint that there's more behind this question by telling us that he wanted to justify himself. And by asking, who is my neighbor? The expert is doing something, not just trying to save face, but he's trying to cut down that list of who his neighbors are. He wants a short list. He wants to say, okay, these are my neighbors over here, but these people over here are not my neighbors. These are my neighbors, the people who look like me, sound like me, act like me, think like me. 
That's what he's hoping Jesus will tell him. And it's in response to that question that Jesus tells him the parable of the Good Samaritan. I, I know everybody knows the parable, so I'm not going to go through it verse by verse. But the parable tells us of a Samaritan, someone who's part Jewish, part Gentile. Part, so Gentile, not Jewish. So in a mean way of saying, he's a mutt. He's mixed breed. That's how the Jewish people would have... That's how the Jewish people thought of Samaritans. They're mutts. They're mixed breeds. They're not fully Jewish. And this, gen, this Samaritan is on the road one day, and he sees a man beaten and robbed, left on the road, half dead. And so what, what does he do? He doesn't know who this guy is. He just sees him there half dead, and he goes, and he takes care of him, and he takes him to, a, to an inn, and pays the innkeeper and tells him to take care of the innkeeper, asking him to nurse him back to health and says he'll pay for any, any costs that are associated. It's not, a, it's not a Levite, a good Jewish man who stops to help this beaten up man. It's not a priest who stops to help this beaten up man. It's a Samaritan. The Levite and the priest both cross to the other side of the road and keep going on their way. It's a Samaritan, this mixed, this mixed man, half Jew, half Gentile, who stops and takes care of this man. And Jesus' point in all this is to the Samaritan and to us. Our neighbor is not the person that looks like us, who talks like us, who acts like us, who agrees with us and thinks the same way we do. Our, our neighbor is anybody who is hurting in our midst, around us, in front of us, along our way. It doesn't matter who or what the person is. If we encounter people who are hurting in our midst, those are our neighbors. Those are our neighbors, people we encounter on the way, in our journey in this Christian life. Those who are hurting those who are suffering, those are our neighbors. That's why Jesus asks in verse 36, which, one of, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? In asking who is my neighbor, the expert wanted to cut down that list. He wanted to make a list, a short list of people who qualify as his neighbor. Those he has to love, those he has to be good to on one side. And then not his neighbors, are those that he doesn't have to do anything for. His mindset was, the shorter my list is, the easier for me, the better my chance of getting into heaven, and I, I think I can take care of that short list of people. I think I can take care of that short list of people who are Jewish like me, who believe the same thing, who speak the same language, who look like me, who agree with me. The expert in the law's expectations and hopes are so much different from the Samaritans. For the Samaritan, his neighbor is a guy who's lying almost dead, half dead, beaten up in the middle of the road. That's why Jesus asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus is telling the expert in the law and he's telling us that our neighbor is not a list of people that look like us or act like us. Our neighbor is not people that we go out and find looking for them. 
our neighbor, is anyone around us who's hurting? Christian scholar James Edwards says, the question Jesus asks the lawyer is not the same question the lawyer asked Jesus in verse 29. For the lawyer, neighbor is a noun. Can we, can we get the, the quote on the screen? Thank you. For the lawyer, neighbor is a noun. Neighbor is an object to whom one owes duty, burdensome duties that the lawyer desires to avoid. For Jesus, neighbor is a verb, a way of behaving toward people in need that gives life to both giver and receiver. The Greek word, I'm not gonna say it, just the Greek word, is crucial to Jesus's question in verse 36. Who of the three became a neighbor or showed neighborliness? For Jesus, one does not have a neighbor, one is a neighbor, or better, one becomes a neighbor. Pastor Doug tells me that English Connet LLC is looking to reach out to the neighborhood and is looking to get involved in First Nations outreach. When he told me this was missions month, I'm like, why are you asking me? Why are you inviting me? I don't know where you guys are in that process. I don't know where you guys are in trying to figure out how to connect with your neighborhood. I don't know how, where you are in the process of how to reach out to First Nations. But I do want to ask, are you guys asking the right questions? As a church, as a congregation, are you asking the right questions? Instead of asking, who is my neighbor? Or asking, how can we connect with people that live around us? Or instead of asking, how can I get involved in First Nations missions? Maybe the question we should be asking is, am I being a neighbor to the people that God has put in my life already? Maybe that means being a neighbor to those who live close to you, who live in your neighborhood, or maybe to coworkers or classmates. Maybe that means being a neighbor to the barista at the coffee shop that you go to or being a neighbor to the wait staff at, the rest, at your favorite restaurant. But I think the question we should be asking isn't who is my neighbor, but who am I a neighbor to? Or who has God put in my life that I can be a neighbor to? I didn't realize this at the time, but that's kind of how I got involved in First Nations missions. I went to a high school where the local First Nations kids all bust into the high school from the reserve. And I grew up telling all the racist jokes that you could think of. If there's a racist joke, I knew it. People would start telling me a racist joke, I would finish it for them. And I grew up with the stereotype that the First Nations are lazy, they don't study, they drink. Because I, I would go to school and I would see the bus from the reserve pull up and 80% of the kids, instead of going into the school for class, would go across the street to the mall at 8.30 in the morning. The mall doesn't open till 10. I grew up thinking these jokes were real, legitimate, that this is the way they are. Because in some ways it matched what I saw. But when I moved out to Vancouver to study at Regent, Regent had an intramural hockey team, but we didn't have enough players. For some reason, People who want to go into ministry, they don't, not enough of them play hockey. So we had to recruit some players from UBC. And our team captain went and she recruited a, a couple of First Nations players for our team. There were UBC students who wanted to play hockey. They didn't have enough players to make their own team, so they joined our team. These were some big boys. 
like big First Nations boys. I loved them. Anytime we played another team and they had big like forestry boys, our First Nations boys like just knocked them down, took them out of the way and protected little old me. But the other teams hated playing against them because they were tough. I loved playing with these guys. And after a while, our whole team, after games, we started going up to, can I, say, can I say that we went to the bar to drink after a hockey game here? I don't know if I can get away with that at L LGC. I don't know if I can get, that, get away with that here. But after the game, most of the team would go up to the bar at UBC at afterwards, and we would have drinks together as a team, including the First Nations guys. Do you know what the difference was between the Regent players and the First Nations players? Take a second and think about what would be the difference between the First Nations players and the Regent players. The First Nations players didn't drink alcohol. It was most, it was mostly, it was most of the Regent players were the ones drinking alcohol and the First Nations players wouldn't touch it. Probably not your first thought. That wasn't my first thought. When I saw that, I was like, whoa, this is not the stereotype that I grew up with. The guys in seminary, the guys studying to go into ministry were the ones had a beer, two beers, three beers. And the First Nations guys are having pop. I still remember that clearest day because they would order pop and the Christian boys were the ones drinking beer. And as we started hanging out more and more, one of the First Nations guys invited me to drop in hockey in the morning at UBC, so I went. And after that, he invited me over to his place for breakfast. I went and we started talking, hockey, other stuff. And then all of a sudden, he started asking me about Christianity. And because he knew that I went to Regent and that Regent was a Christian school, he starts asking about Christianity. And I thought, we were just playing hockey today. I thought I was just getting a free breakfast. But no, I got to do some work now. Now I got to share the gospel with this guy. But then I started thinking, I'm going to share the gospel with this guy and he's going to start crying. He's going to accept Jesus. And I'll be like, yes, that's one for me. None of that happened. None of it happened. I shared the gospel with him, waiting for a response, waiting to, for him to break down in tears. And he just listened. He said, okay. I was disappointed. I was disappointed. I thought this would be my first convert as a seminary student. And it didn't happen. But it got me thinking about a couple of things. Of all the players on the team to talk about Christianity with, why invite me? Why ask me? There were students, this was my first year, there were students there who were in their second, third years who, who had a lot more knowledge than I did. There were, students, there were students there who were much better hockey players than I was. Why invite me? And the other thing that I couldn't shake about this whole experience was my guilt. Of all the years of telling racist jokes, of believing the stereotypes, of feeding into the stereotypes of what First Nations people are like, I couldn't shake that guilt. And here was this really good First Nations guy asking me about Christianity. The next year or so of playing hockey with these First Nations guys changed my heart. And I started to see our First Nations brothers and sisters as people made in the image of God. Not as stereotypes, not as jokes, but as someone who is made in the image of God. And I started to realize that God had put them in my life for a reason. 
I didn't need to go out there to find somebody I could share the gospel with. I didn't need to go knock on the door of people who live beside the church and say, do you believe in Jesus? God had put these First Nations brothers right in front of me. And I had to realize that. I kind of got an answer to my first question a few years later about why me. It wasn't like a clear, this is why. It wasn't God saying, this is why, Sam. It was just kind of realizing stuff. So the previous church that I was at did yearly missions trips to a First Nations reserve up in Interior, BC, through an agency called Love Corps. Love Corps is a small mission agency that was started by a Korean pastor who's actually, he was my Sunday school teacher when I was like eight, nine, and a First Nations pastor here in Vancouver. And at the training camp of this first, for my first mission trip to the reserve, the First Nations pastor shared his testimony about what happened to him at residential schools. And it was heartbreaking. I grew up not knowing anything about residential schools. I didn't know a single thing about a residential school until I moved out to BC. And even then, I knew very little about residential school until I went to this training camp and I heard this pastor's testimony about what happened to him at that residential school. It was heartbreaking hearing what happened to him. It was heartbreaking hearing what he went through. Yet here is a man who, in spite of what people who called themselves Christians did to him and the kids around him, who had come to know Jesus and love Jesus so much that he had made it his life's mission to share the gospel with First Nations people. It was amazing to see Christ at work in his life and to change him, to make him who he was, in spite of all that happened to him at the hands of so-called Christians. If you ever get a chance to talk to a, a pastor named Bruce Brown, listen to him. Ask him about his testimony and listen to it. It's powerful stuff. But the other thing I remember from the, his talk was him talking about the role that Asians have to play in reaching the First Nations with the gospel. He said that because of history, a lot of First Nations don't trust Christians. Honestly, I wouldn't either if I went through that. I don't think I would either. And that many First Nations don't trust Europeans. But most of all, they don't trust European Christians. Yet for some reason, for some reason, they're open to Asian Christians. And because of that, the Asian Christians, he was saying, need to step up and start sharing the gospel with them. Maybe it's because we look similar. Maybe it's because we have a shared history with the First Nations of being oppressed by European settlers in Canada. I'm not sure, but whatever the reason is, the First Nations are much more open to Asian Christians than they are to European Christians. And that cemented for me that I need to be a neighbor to my First Nations brothers and sisters, not just on the reserves, but especially to those that God brings into my life and puts around me. And that was when I started connecting the dots and started thinking, because everybody else on the hockey team was white other than me and the First Nations guys. Maybe that's why he felt more comfortable talking to me and asking me. So let me ask you, are you guys asking the right questions? As you're trying to figure out 
how to reach out to your neighborhood, how to get involved in First Nations missions, are you asking the right questions? Are you asking the expert in the law, asking, who is my neighbor? Because you want to limit the people you have to serve. Because you want to limit who your neighbor is. Or are you following Jesus' lead, asking yourself, am I being a neighbor to those in distress around me? Am I being a neighbor to the people that God has already put into my life? Because I think if our mission starts with the wrong question, if our missions, our theology of mission starts with the question, who is my neighbor? I think we're in trouble. Because I think when we ask, who is my neighbor? That's when we start separating us and them. They're the people that need my help. They're the people that I can go and do something for. And I think when we start asking, who is my neighbor? That's when we start thinking, I'm in a position where I can go and do something good for them. And we start looking for people who are less fortunate than us. We start looking for people that we can go and we're going to help them. And I think our, asking that question puts a barrier between us and them because it separates us. In our mind, it separates. We're over here. We're the ones who are coming to them to do something for them because they need our help. But that's not the case. But if our theology of mission starts with, am I being a neighbor to those in need around me? Those that God has already put into my life. Then our mission field starts in our backyard. Maybe with the brother or sister in church that you know is suffering. Suffering some sort of loss. Loss of job. Loss of parents, spouse, children. Some other loss. Maybe it starts with random encounters on the street. Someone you see struggling with life. Not just struggling financially, but someone struggling with life. Your waitress or your waiter or, or your barista. And as I say this, I'm not saying this because I've got this all figured out. Please don't think that. Because on the drive-in today... I don't, when I got to Vancouver, Vancouver seems to rain less. I live in Langley. And on the drive-in, it was pouring. And on the drive-in, there are a lot of bad drivers, except me. Everybody, everybody else, bad driver, me, good driver. But all, all these guys, like, flying by, and I'm thinking, because I know I have to come here and preach this, and I'm thinking, if, if they have an accident, am I actually going to stop and help them? Or am I going to just drive by because I have to get, to, get here by 10.50? So as I'm preaching this, I'm not, please don't think that I've got this all figured out and that's why I'm saying this. I'm saying this because it's also a reminder to me. There are times that we need to stop. If there's someone hurting around us, maybe we don't need to rush to where we're going so quickly, but maybe we need to stop and help them, spend time with them. And maybe, maybe our outreach starts in our local coffee shops or diner or at school or at work or literally in our backyard talking to your neighbor over the fence. Because I think when we ask the question, am I being a neighbor to those around me who are suffering? I don't think we need to go out there looking for someone because there are tons of people around us who are suffering, who are hurting. And I think when we ask that question, we start recognizing those people around us. 
we start recognizing that God's already put people around us that we can be neighbors to. We have to decide if we read how we read what Jesus said. We have to decide if we are going to take seriously, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we're going to take that seriously and actually do it or not. So maybe we should be asking ourselves, who has God put in our lives that we can be neighbors to? Let's pray. Lord, I love this passage of the Good Samaritan. But as I go deeper into it, I know how difficult it is. Because you call, you call me to be a neighbor to those who are hurting around me. Not just to people who look like me, act like me, think like me, but to anyone who's hurting around me. And I know that's tough. I know I'm not good at that. But at the same time, I know you call us to do that. So Lord, would you help us? Would you help those who are here like me who are not good at this? But we want to be better. We want to glorify you and serve you in our interactions with those around us. But it's difficult for us. Would you help us? Would you empower us through your spirit? Would you give us hearts that care for those around us who are hurting? Would you give us the words to speak to them? To welcome them, to love them, to be neighbors to them. Lord, would you help us to show them that they are sons and daughters of your sons and daughters made in your image and that they are worthy because you made them and you call them beloved. Lord, would you help us to love them as you love them? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, Reverend Samuel, for sharing that message with us. Uh, we'll make sure to edit out that part about the, about the bar. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, we enter into a time of uh, response. And um, uh, for this response song, I guess you could say it's a response for this overall month as we've delved into this idea of, of, of missions and, and this call uh, of God to, to love him first and foremost, but also to love our neighbors, as Reverend Samuel just preached on. And so um, I just invite you to reflect upon that, uh, reflect upon how you're doing and, and, and your love for uh, whether it's on your way to work or your family, uh, let alone, you know, across the world. So I invite you to sing with us when you can. off with this blessing and benediction. Let's close our eyes and our hands out as a sign of receiving. And let me pray this over us. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else.